The story of Joseph is the story of God's purposeful providence. It's the story of how God relentlessly pursues and provides for his own. It's the story of how God ensures that his covenant promises to Abraham and his family would survive every roadblock and diversion you can imagine that seems to get in their way. And ultimately, it's the story of a God who is persistently present with his people through every nook and cranny of life outside the Garden of Eden. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but this purposefully provident, pursuing, providing, persistently present God is your God. That's what makes the story of Joseph such good news. We pick up the story today in chapter 39 of the book of Genesis. After a one-week detour back in Canaan, where we followed the shenanigans of one of his older brothers, Judah, and Judah will appear again later in the story, so we've bookmarked that. But in the beginning of this story uh, of Joseph's life in chapter 37, we saw that God has given Joseph some prophetic dreams that depicted members of his family gathered around him and bowing themselves in homage to the earth before him, and Joseph himself in a position of kingly rule and authority. That is how all of his family interpreted his dreams, and it is uh, the, the story that God has begun to set in motion. Now, Joseph's brothers were none too excited about those dreams, which, along with their father's preferential treatment of Joseph, earned him the resentment and hatred of his brothers. And so, back in the latter half of chapter 37, we saw Joseph's brothers attack him in a field, throw him down into a pit, and eventually sell him as a slave to some Ishmaelite traders that were heading down to Egypt, a place that seems symbolically to represent death itself the land of graves. And so chapter 37 ended, chapter 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And then chapter 38 went back to Canaan and didn't show us what was happening with Joseph at all. So now chapter 39 picks up right where we left off. Let's read the first six verses and see where the story takes us. Chapter 39, beginning of verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. We'll pause there in the middle of verse 6, because it is actually a paragraph break in the text. So the story is set up here. We're not sure how much time has passed from Joseph's 
uh, being sold as a slave until the scene here that we read about, this position of influence and authority and oversight that he's risen to in Potiphar's house. We do know that Joseph is 17 when he is sold as a slave. And then we know that later in the story, spoiler alert, when he begins to serve Pharaoh, he is 30 years old. So there's 13 years that pass between when he gets to Egypt as a slave and when he is in the house, the palace of Pharaoh in a position of authority. We don't know necessarily how they're divided, but we know that 13 years pass. So probably a few years, I would guess, have passed for Joseph to be purchased as a slave and then for this master, Potiphar, a man of influence, an officer of Pharaoh, to begin to recognize something in Joseph and to begin to see that everything he touches seems to succeed and begin to give him perhaps a little bit more authority and a little bit more oversight until he is now basically the number one guy over his whole household. Probably some time has passed, maybe a few years, but we're not told. But what the author wants to drive home in this chapter is this. Yahweh was with Joseph. That's the main big point of this whole chapter. If you want to write that across the top of your note page, and just remember Genesis 39 is about Yahweh's presence with Joseph, you could do that right now. And we know that that's what Moses wants to drive home because he mentions Yahweh specifically and the benefits of Yahweh's presence and blessing eight times throughout this chapter. Five of those occurrences are in the verses we just read. Let's walk through them real quick just so that you know I'm not making this up. In verse 2, Yahweh was with Joseph. Just to note, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, what's behind that in Hebrew is the personal covenant name of God, how he revealed himself to Moses later on, Yahweh, I am that I am, right? So when you see all caps Lord, that's Yahweh. That's what's back behind that. So verse 2, Yahweh was with Joseph. What's the result of that? He became successful. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. That's even noteworthy. He's not just a servant out in the field. He is in the house. Verse 3, his master saw that Yahweh was with him. And then here's the third mention, and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed. So Yahweh has been named three times now in just verses 2 and 3. Then down in verse 5, it says, From the time he made him overseer in his house, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. There's number 4. And then number 5 is also in that verse. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and in field. So we've already seen five times the name of God, Yahweh, mentioned repeatedly just in setting up this story. And he's not done yet. We'll see that name appear more. And we'll see, more importantly, the effects of Yahweh's presence. The effect of Yahweh's presence with Joseph is seen clearly in the details of his life as they're given to us here. First, first of all, he wasn't sold to just anyone, but to a person of prominence in Egypt, to an officer in Pharaoh's court. He could have been sold to some random Joe Egyptian, but instead he was sold to a very prominent, important person. We see him rising within the, the social chain 
in the home of his master. He's found favor with his master and an enormous amount of trust. Potiphar leaves all that is his in Joseph's hands. And it says he has no concern for anything except what he ate. And I think by that, he just means that he had to remember to come and sit down and eat a meal. I'm sure he wasn't out killing his own food, right? He had no concern about anything. He trusts Joseph implicitly. And the work of Joseph that he's been doing in the house for Potiphar has been extremely successful. Why? Because Yahweh is with him. Yahweh is at work. These are no mere coincidences. This is the outworking of God's sovereign purposes in Joseph's life for the sake of the covenant family. So Joseph's beginning to rise. He was in a pit. He was lifted out of the pit. He went down to Egypt, the land of graves, as a slave. But now he's beginning to rise, even within the framework of slavery, of bondage. He's rising, socially speaking. He's rising in terms of his influence and authority. So far, so good, right? Things are looking up for Joseph. Let's see what happens next. Look at the second half of verse 6, and we'll read down through verse 10. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. That detail at the beginning or the middle of verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The phrase there appears only here and in Genesis 29, 17, where it spoke of his mother, Rachel. So apparently the attractiveness runs in the family. And it's only used to describe Rachel and Joseph. And his attractive appearance is an odd detail. So it would seem totally incidental and irrelevant to the story. Except that his master's wife casts her eyes upon him. So she takes an interest in Joseph. And, whoa, excuse me and begins pursuing an illicit sexual relationship with him. And we see that it's not just one time, but repeatedly. It's not a one-time proposition. Hey, would you do this? And he says no, and she's like, okay, I'll leave you alone. Because we're told down in verse 10, day after day, he refused to listen to her, to lie with her or be with her. Sounds to me like he's even trying to steer clear so his response to this pursuit, not just an invitation, but a pursuit, in verse 8, he refused. And in verse 10, day after day, he would not listen to her. So he resists her advances, not once, but repeatedly. Why? Why does Joseph resist? Or maybe, more interestingly or pertinently to us, how? How does he find the moral strength to resist this temptation. Because remember, just a chapter ago, we saw a man, his older brother Judah, very easily succumb 
to a temptation just because it was there. It was not even necessarily a pursuit or repeated. It just was there. And then he fell right into it. So how does Joseph have the, the moral strength to resist? Well, his reasoning with Potiphar's wife actually gives us two insights that I think are instructive for our own battles with sin and temptation. First of all, he is aware of the human cost of this sin. He's aware of the human cost. Look at what he says in in verse 8. My master has no concern about anything. He's put me in charge. He's not greater in the house than I am. He's kept nothing back from me except you. So Joseph recognizes what it would mean for Potiphar and for his relationship to Potiphar and for the role that he's playing currently in Potiphar's house were he to cross this boundary. He is aware of the human cost. So he's saying here, Potiphar trusts me. Right? This is a clear boundary, and to violate it would do irreparable damage to that relationship, to my own status in the house. But even more important than the human cost that he's clearly aware of, number two, he is driven by the glory of God. I hope you notice what he said there. After he explains his position in Potiphar's house and how Potiphar has entrusted him with all that's his and kept nothing back from him, he doesn't say, so how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? What he says is, how could I sin against God? That is what drives his concern. He's aware of the human cost. That factors in to his decision. But more than anything else, Joseph is concerned to honor the name of Yahweh. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You may be reminded of David's confession in Psalm 51 where he says in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. Well, we know full well David didn't only sin against God. His sins had drastic, dire consequences for other people and for his kingdom, for his own child, right? So it's not only against God that he sinned, but what is foremost in his mind is the honor of God and how his sin, David in that instance, his failure, had diminished the honor of God's name among the people. And Joseph here is concerned not to cross the boundary, not to break that barrier, because he wants to ensure that he does not sin against God. He wants to ensure that the honor of God is kept intact, that his witness even to God. That's not said, that's a little speculative, but I think it's reasonable to conclude that his witness to Yahweh in Egypt would be compromised if he were to cross this boundary. And listen, this is really instructive and helpful for us. We are faced with temptations of all kinds, certainly including temptation to various kinds of sexual immorality. Remember these two things. Number one, sexual sin always has a human cost. It's always more than you predict, more than you'd expect. Damaged relationships, broken trust, emotional pain, lost positions and status, all manner of things may come, humanly speaking, through this kind of sin. Don't be blind to the human cost of your choices. But even more importantly than that, 
Sexual sin is always an offense against a holy God. We belittle his glory. We damage our own relationship with him. We misrepresent him to the world. I submit to you that if your heart does not burn for the honor of God's name, then no awareness of the mere human cost of sin will be enough to keep you from falling. I've seen it over and over. If there's not a burning concern for the glory of God to live in a way that pleases God, no awareness of the human damage that will come keeps a person from sinning. It just isn't enough. It must be a concern, a passion for the glory of God to be known and seen and honored. So where this leaves us is pleading with God to deepen our affections for him. This is something we can't do for ourselves. This is a heart change that he has to bring. Plead with God for your passion for his glory and your desire to live in a way that pleases him would grow such that the temptations that come into your pathway don't even seem interesting anymore. So Joseph faithfully withstands this temptation over and over again. How will Potiphar's wife respond to Joseph's resistance? Surely she'll just give up and move along, right? Let's take a look. Verse 11. 11 through 18, we'll read now. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. That's the right thing to do, by the way. Run. Man of God, flee immorality, says Paul. And as soon as she saw that he pulled and said to them, See, he, he being Potiphar, by the way, he has brought a Hebrew among us to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lay and fled out of the house. Well, Joseph created enough of a scene with his running out of the house and leaving his garment behind that I guess Potiphar's wife feels like she has to do something, otherwise she's going to start to look suspicious. And so she decides to make up a story, and she decides to levy a false accusation against the righteous Joseph. I hope you've noticed that literary detail to connect us to the story. Maybe there's something more going on. But he leaves his garment behind, and it is used by Potiphar's wife in a ploy to deceive her husband concerning Joseph's guilt. Similarly to how in chapter 37, his garment, back then that robe of many colors or robe with long sleeves, his garment was left behind and used by his brothers to deceive their father concerning Joseph's death. Very interesting. And I want you to see the stark contrast that the author wants us to notice between Joseph and his older brother Judah. I've already mentioned it. But I want to dig into this a little bit more. In chapter 38, Judah was met with temptation when his daughter-in-law, Tamar, he didn't realize it was her, posed as a harlot by the roadside, and he succumbed to temptation immediately, just because it was there. 
on his way to somewhere else. Joseph is pursued by Potiphar's wife day after day and repeatedly resists the temptation to sin. Judah willingly turned away from the people of God and began to live like the foreigners in the land of Canaan. Joseph is forcibly removed from God's people against his will and yet continues to live as one of God's children in the land of Egypt. The contrast could not be more stark. And Joseph's distinctness That differentness is even highlighted literarily by the fact that he is referred to twice in this passage as a Hebrew. That is what Potiphar's wife refers to Joseph as when she speaks first to the men of the house, the Hebrew that he brought among us to laugh at us, and then also when she spoke to Potiphar. You brought this Hebrew servant among us, and he did this thing. Why point out that he's a Hebrew? He's not like them. He's different. He's other than us. Now, from in her mind, and in the mind of the Egyptian people, as we'll come to see in some other ways as the story unfolds, that's not generally regarded, they're not regarded with respect. The fact that they're a Hebrew is actually a, a prejudice that they have against them. And they hate shepherds. There's this whole sort of uh, racial, ethnic uh, animosity that the Egyptians have toward the Hebrews. of death and depravity. And yet you, says Jesus in Matthew 5, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The lives of Christ's people, bought by his blood and shaped by his kingdom, are intended to create a stark contrast with the darkness and depravity of the world in which we live. The more you blend in with the world, the less you're living like the people of God, the less you're representing him. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, 1 Peter 2, 11. Friends, the holiness, the distinctness of God's people in this world is so important. And listen, That distinctness won't always help you win friends and influence people. Sometimes it will land you in a pit. Joseph's righteousness here actually lands him in trouble because his master's wife does not have the same moral boundaries. She's willing to bear false witness against him. She's willing to make up a story to be sure the consequences of her aggression don't blow back on her. So Joseph does the right thing, but he will be treated as a guilty man. Your righteous character, your stand for the things of God, your commitment to speak the truth could very well earn you the scorn and disdain of your neighbors. Your resistance to the whims of the world, your refusal to follow every wind of doctrine that blows through our culture might just earn you some enemies and lead to unjust suffering on your part. 
That verse in 1 Peter I read earlier about living as sojourners and exiles. A few verses later, Peter says, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Well, of course, you had it coming. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he says, and this is crazy, for to this you have been called. Oh, we usually don't include that in the advertisements for Christianity, do we? That's not on the billboards along the interstate. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Live as a Christian, receive the hatred and rejection of the world, and gladly endure it because you're following in the very steps of your Savior, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. May God grant us the faith and courage to be so resolute in this dangerous age. Well, let's see where Joseph's righteous stand will lead him on the coattails of this false accusation by Potiphar's wife. Look at verses 19 to 23. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. Notice this is prison is where the king's prisoners are kept. This is no ordinary prison. It's a jail for political prisoners and the like, pretty high-profile criminals. That detail seems incidental at this point, but it will become important to the story in chapter 40 that we'll look at next week. And here's the, fifth, the sixth, seventh, and eighth mention of the name of Yahweh. Verse 21, but Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then twice in verse 23, Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. Who does Moses, the author of this story, want us to see? Not so much Joseph. He wants us to see God. Faithfully, persistently, stubbornly present with his people. Working on their behalf. Fighting to ensure that the promises he has made, he will keep. And so the chapter ends in precisely the way it began. Joseph is in bondage. At the beginning of the chapter, he was in bondage as a slave. At the end of the chapter, he's in bondage as a prisoner. And God is with him there in the house of Potiphar or in the king's prison. 
and God gives him success and favor with those in authority, such that they have no concern about what's going on there. Potiphar doesn't worry about anything except what he, what he eats, and the keeper of the prisoner doesn't worry about anything that happens in the prison. Joseph just does it all. He's given oversight of his surroundings. He's entrusted with leadership and stewardship and authority in both of these settings. And Yahweh is with him. The burden of Genesis 39 is to show us God's covenant faithfulness in action. To reveal to us a God who is persistently present with his people no matter what they face. When Joseph's brothers attacked him and cast him into an empty cistern, God was with him in that pit. When Joseph was sold as a slave and taken to Egypt, God was with him in the home of his Egyptian master. When Joseph is falsely accused of a crime and cast into the king's dungeon, God was with him there in that prison. And the presence of God makes all the difference. The presence of God protects him, preserves him, gives him favor in the sight of others, brings success to his work. And ultimately, it's the presence of God that ensures all of these events unfolding in Joseph's life are accomplishing something. They're not random, meaningless events. They have been decreed by God's purposeful, redemptive providence. And though Joseph certainly could not have predicted what might happen next, he surely can see by now that God isn't giving up on fulfilling his promises to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. There's another who would come from Abraham's family, many generations after Joseph, who would live a righteous life and faithfully represent God's kingdom. Of this righteous man, we're told, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. But despite his righteous life, he would be treated as a guilty man. And while crowds of sinners looked on in mockery, he would be hanged on a criminal's cross where he would bear the punishment for sin, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. His suffering on the cross would end in death and his body would be placed into a grave. He descended into the pit of death for us so that we might be spared its clutches and gain eternal life through him. Here's why the gospel is such good news for us today. What Jesus Christ purchased for us in his death and resurrection is the assurance of God's presence. The blessing and favor of God upon his people because of the work of Christ. So you can be assured, just as God was present with Joseph in every trial and temptation, he is with you today. And he'll be with you tomorrow. What pit are you in? What bondage are you facing? What temptation is threatening to overtake you? What trauma or tragedy seems to be all you can see right now? Take heart, weary saint. The God of Joseph is in the pit with you, and he never sleeps.
Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your persistent presence with us. We thank you for your stubborn faithfulness to keep your promises. Give us the faith to trust you, to believe that you will fulfill every promise you have made in the person of Christ when he returns to establish his kingdom forever. And give us grace in the meantime to live in the tension, to live in the brokenness and fallenness of this world, even with the brokenness and fallenness of our own hearts and desires. Give us faith. Empower us by your Spirit to live in such a way as to represent Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Give us the confidence to know that it is far better to live a life of holiness that honors you and guards us and preserves us for your eternal kingdom than it is to pursue the fleeting pleasures of this world. Minister to every broken heart with the grace of this gospel, the awareness of your persistent presence. Grant us strength to live for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen.